This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Andrew, it's time to solve some mysteries. There are crucial mm-hmm. mysteries facing our nation. Who let the dogs out? No, that, that's stupid. Who put the bump in the bump a bump a bump? Who put the ram in the ram a lama ding dong? How will I know what love is? Well, I want you to show me actually what love is. Well, I can't. I can host a podcast with you, though. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. Every week, one of us reads a book that we've never read before and tells the other one about it. And this week, Andrew read a mystery. I did. It was so mysterious. It's the Hardy Boys. Number it's not you didn't read all of the Hardy Boys. I read the whole Hardy Boys. The, the first book in the Hardy Boys series, Hardy Boys number 1, The Tower Treasure. Okay, it seems like you had a little trouble remembering the name of the book. Is that indicative of the book or were you just really excited to say Hardy Boys? Hardy Boys. <laughs> okay. I didn't I didn't remember the name of the book off the top of my head. Fair enough. But there are a lot this this book this series has a lot of books in it and all the titles are pretty Nut? I, th- I would say they're nutso. Sure. Um, th- some of these titles include uh, The Mystery of the Chinese Junk, <laughs> Danger on Vampire Trail, uh-huh. The Ape Man's Secret, Tic Tac Terror. I mean, a lot. Of, so, and then there are other ones like Tower Treasure, The House on the Cliff, Hunting <laughs> for Hidden Gold, The Secret of the Caves. The Great Airport Mystery. <laughs> yeah, some of them are pretty bland. One of them, I think, I, I didn't write it down. It's like, secret, the secret agent on flight 101. Like, Whoa. come on. <laughs> A lot of secrets, like the secret panel, the secret warning... Yes. Um, the Secret of the Lost Tunnel, The Secret of Wildcat Swamp. Just a lot of people keeping secrets. Secrets of Pirate's Hill. Um... And then sometimes they use mystery, like the the mystery of the Chinese junk, the mystery at Devil's Paw. They could just use secret. Yeah, that's but. true. Um, so before we dive into the book, I want to thank uh, Bob E. That's not Bobby necessarily. But it's Bob Thanks, Bobby. E, <laughs> who is our Patreon supporter who recommended that we read this book. Uh, so we're, we're going to talk about it. Um, I had never read a Hardy Boys book i ain't never read one andrew i have read tom swift novels which came out of the same stratemeyer syndicate that uh-huh. is behind both not both um it's behind hardy boys tom swift nancy drew um the rover boys <laughs> that's another series that mr edward stratemeyer created um, um tom swift jr don't forget tom oh, swift sure, jr sure uh, Edward Stratemeyer was once once referred to by the New York Times as the Henry Ford of children's fiction. If that helps you understand what he was up to, yeah, because he uh, he was he was successful at it, and he was also very good at 
at building an assembly line and churning out lots and lots of similar looking products. Yeah, so it was it was what is referred to as the book packaging technique where you have this standalone company churning out books like not not democratizing but kind of just delegating different parts of the book to different people well it's like you're gonna research you're gonna write you're gonna package it up and edit it and whatever hired a lot of journalists like people who just knew how to write but could use regular pay i suppose yeah and he i think so the deal was is that every every one of these series is is published under a pseudonym that is shared among multiple authors so the hardy boys written by franklin w dixon who turns out not a not a person nope not at all but um stratemeyer early in his career when he was still writing all this stuff himself he sort of intuited discovered i'm not sure like what the word you would use is but he says basically if i'm writing four different series under my name that's just kind of cannibalizing the market for stratemeyer fiction but if i write all these different series under a bunch of different names it's very smart it's like oh i gotta get the new franklin w dixon book it's and yeah and he realized that having a single name for a series was important because there's like a perception that that was a real person and kids would latch on to it. Um, he was the, f- he's regarded as the first to take this approach to children's fiction um, mm-hmm. and to, and for it to really catch on. So some of the other rules from syndicate books were like, as we said, they'd all be part of a series. Um, all the rules are very yeah. good and bad. <laughs> um, the first several volumes would be published like all at once, and these were called quote breeders, which is gross. <laughs> you put them out all at once to d- to discover if the series was going to be successful. So yes. if people like would buy the first one, but not the subsequent ones. Then no, screw it, they, kill that fake person, and don't write those <laughs> books anymore. They looked like contemporary adult books with similar bindings and typefaces. They would be of a predictable length. Uh, chapters and pages should end mid-situation to increase your desire to keep reading. Um, <laughs> usually, they would begin with a recap of other books in the series in order to promote those books. And books would also end with a preview of the next volume, such as this, quote, Nancy could not help but wonder when she might encounter as strange a mystery as the recent one. Such a case was to confront her soon, the clue of the whistling bagpipes. Yeah, that happens at uh, at the end of this book. Does it really? When it says, they hoped another mystery would soon come their way, and one did at the house on the cliff. <laughs> uh, books would In be... In all caps and bolts. <laughs> books would be priced at 50 cents rather than more than that, um, and which I guess was pretty affordable at the time. And characters should not age or marry. Um, apparently protagonists of the Rover boys and Tom Swift and a series called Ruth Fielding did grow up and marry and sales dropped. So the syndicate decided that characters would never, uh, get hitched ever again. Yeah. No one wants to buy a book called the Rover men. Yeah, it's true. Um, and I think that's why Tom, Tom Swift Jr. Came out. It's like, man, we got to put this, (laughs) we got to put this back in the bottle. Do you know Tom Uh Swift is where the name for taser comes from, Andrew? I did not know that. Yeah, Thomas A. Swift's electric rifle is what the word taser stands for. Really? Yeah, it's kind of bizarre that that (laughs) device came from this weird sci-fi series. Interesting. Um, So, So, yeah, the the syndicate is very, like, mysterious. Like, the people who... 
So you get a bunch of writers. Usually they are not credited at nope, all. Nope, nope, nope. Um, usually they are paid a fixed rate. Sometimes it's a few thousand bucks. Sometimes it's like per word. But they know they don't get any like royalty share. So when these things become big, they don't see a, like a a profit, a, a yeah. proportional amount yeah. of of profit from it. And it's you know it's it's continue it's not an old timey thing like they still do Hardy Boys books Nancy Drew books under the, these names that they've had forever. Yep. Um, I know that the Babysitters Club series had this sort of situation going on because we're friends with the son of Peter Larangis. Sure, sure. Babysitters Club alumnus book writer yeah. extraordinaire <laughs> um i don't know did do you know if bob stein our boy bob stein did that it feels like i i think i don't know though i th- i saw it cited in one of the articles but i don't know if that's more just about the um the kind of mass creation model yeah it fits it fits the profile but i don't want to like i don't want to cast aspersions sure Here, um, let me see let me just gonna do some googling Goose so while you google i will say that the primary fiction. writer of these of this initial run of hardy boys books he wrote 19 of the first 25 was a canadian author leslie mcfarlane he uh, also wrote some of the dana girls series which was under carolyn Keene, which was then used for nancy drew uh, he also had a, a series of books called dave fearless which I'm pretty bummed we're not talking about right now. Dave Fearless? Yeah. Nice. Um, he ha- there are a lot of quotes from him uh, like kind of disparaging the Hardy Boys and not really liking them, but they paid his bills. Um, and he is also at the center of kind of the scholarship on the revision of the Hardy Boys that happened in 1959 along with a bunch of the other syndicate series. So... Harriet Adams, who is pretty, you know, is well known as as being responsible for Nancy Drew. Uh, did you get an answer to what you were googling? Andrew? I did. So, all right. So we'll, we'll come back to Harriet Adams after you tell me this. There's a little bit of conflicting information out there, but um, in a Reddit AMA from 2013. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Stein says, I wrote all the GB books myself. Believe it or not, sometimes I had writers help me with the outlines, but all books were by me. Um. He has also said, it takes me 10 days to write a Fear Street book, eight days for a Goosebumps. Great. So it's not, it doesn't sound like it's super taxing for him to write at the rate he's supposed to write. Um, but there is also, you know, there, there are rumors out there that he had a ghostwriter do at least the Give Yourself Goosebumps that would make books, sense. which were the Choose Your Own Adventure yeah, ones. We've we, covered did, we did those. one that would make sense. a couple years ago. Yeah. Um, so Harry Adams, um, is also, you know, is credited with a lot of the outlines for Nancy Drew, as well as some of the Hardy Boys books. She's um, uh, Stratemeyer's daughter, one of his daughters. Um, and in 59, they moved over, uh, they they went through like a whole transition period. So like parents had been writing in about how all these syndicate novels were like... Were super racist. Were super yeah. racist. Um, and then... Like, you know, problematic stereotypes, uh, you know, t- there's a couple books that you can go check out, including, um, what is it? I have it written down here somewhere. Uh, the Footprints Under the Windows has, like, this Chinese villain that's really bad. The Hidden Harbor Mystery has, like, a lot of, like, really awful race riot politics. Yeah, so I was going to say, like, I 
at some point, at least at least once, these books have been sort of rewritten and repackaged. Yes. To and excise those elements because there is no, there definitely was not a, do we preserve this to like show what it was like at the time? It's a, how can, how do we change these to make sure kids keep buying them? And so the answer was to get rid of the racist stuff. And unfortunately that does not, that did not mean like preserving characters, a, a diverse like correcting area, stereotypes. Yeah. It usually just meant getting rid of anybody who wasn't white. That's true. Um, and there's like debate on who was responsible, more responsible for those stereotypes like McFarlane or like Adams and other people at the syndicate. It's like at the end of the day, you're all sharing the same Franklin W. Dixon name. Like you're all responsible for it. Um, so they're concerned about that. They were also concerned about declining sales due to like television, I guess. Yeah, because books are for nerds. Books are for nerds. So so it's like <laughs> TV. That, so they like shortened the books. Um, they dropped the reading level and like vocab. They made it more actiony. Uh, and it was like all the mysteries were easier to solve. And also the boys apparently got real cool with the law. Like they apparently in earlier books, you know, they would uh, run up against law enforcement and kind of have to push some buttons or go around cops and stuff. And they really cleaned that up. It seems. Yeah. So the first, the writer of the first like 30 years of books, yeah. um, a guy named Leslie McFarlane, mm -hmm. Um, he um, had a relative, quote, lack of sympathy with the American power structure. Um, he had an auto in, 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 his, in his autobiography. He said of the Hardy Boys books that he wrote, um, I had my own thoughts about teaching youngsters that obedience to authority is somehow sacred. Would civilization crumble if kids got the notion that the people who ran the world were sometimes stupid, occasionally wrong and even corrupt at times? Now, the version of the Tower Treasure that I read, the Hardy Boys are definitely squares. Yeah, yeah. Because they're like, what if, What do we do if we get the reward for solving this crime? And one of them's like, oh, I'll put it in a, the bank or I'll save it for college. <laughs> you nerds. But it's actually, that's Go buy a bunch of Adderall though. or something. Like, what do you do? So there's been another critique of, of this cleanup of the Hardy Boys that in the 20s and 30s, um, they were less affluent. And, and so even when they were like taking that and stashing it away for college, it was because they were um, not like upper class citizens. Um, and so in the like... They are firmly middle class and but, being firmly middle class in like 1920 something looks an awful lot like being affluent in 2018. Well, well but I, I that's fair. But I also think that the... I am surprised that this research has revealed to me that the degree to which I think the Hardy Boys that we are familiar with um, is way more a product of the 60s than it is necessarily the 20s and 30s. Like maybe 60s counter counter yes, culture. Yes, correct. <laughs> sure. Like there's a there's a leave it to beaverness. So like there's a, a review of this book that I found and then we'll take a break after this um, at at read at home mom, which is a cool blog. Um, that analyzed the original version and this version just kind of compared some stuff. Like, apparently, at some point in this story, uh, they, like, build a fire to, like, delay someone um, who's, like, trying to take a train. Oh, yeah, they do set a fire to delay someone. It's a plane that they're going to take. In, we can talk in about the, that. In the 20s, they build a bomb. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
It, and then a lot of other stuff, it's like it's, you know, as we said, it's shorter, it's quicker to the action. Uh, but then there's just a lot of different uh, language that's removed or changed. Um, oh, I bet the Hardy Boys cussed a bunch in the originals. Uh, it's also that like... They probably just dropped F-bombs all over the place. It's also like references to they drinking. Built an, they built an F-bomb. They built an F-bomb, <laughs> like drinking and stuff. But then things like um, in, in the Tower Treasure, Chet Morton's car... This is from a Salon article I found. Chet Morton's car is referred to as a gay-looking speed wagon, <laughs> which just wouldn't read the same post 1959 i suppose in the revision the car loses its description but gains the name gains a name the queen which in and of itself is a maybe yeah (laughs) there's some wit involved i suppose here which is nice um but it does seem like uh it hasn't hurt their popularity in the long term there's still this kind of 20th century cultural touchstone but uh they, I don't know. It seems seems like they something was lost in the translation. Yes, I just came out to the garage to get the queen, and she was gone. Climb on behind me, Chat Joe urges. The queen can't go as fast as our motorcycles. We're catch, we'll catch her in no time. The queen's pretty well known around Bayport, Frank remarked. Maybe they saw the queen. Yes, and at the speed he was making, the poor queen travel, you'll never catch him. No telling where that guy may take my queen. Oh my gosh. <laughs> What's the queen got to do with all this? <laughs> That's just made it really awkward, I think. The Queen had a long thing. I just did a, a search through the book for oh, all instances <laughs> I of I thought queen. it was the, all on one. It was not all one weird paragraph. It also The book also describes the car as quote unquote, and the, the quotes are in the book, souped up. Oh, jeez. He worked on it daily to soup up the engine. Just pouring soup all in there. That's how you make mushroom. a car go. Andrew, yeah, we got to go to the break and then you come back and tell me more about these. All boys. right, let's soup up these ads. Andrew, I got soup in my teeth. Help. Oh, no, you ate too much soup. I ate too much what soup. What did I tell you about eating all that soup? And now I have a. I have an important meeting, and I can't have soup in my teeth. Oh, Help man. me. What should I do? That. Has this ever happened to you? <laughs> The truth is, Craig, that most of us are getting all that soup out of our teeth wrong. We're brushing wrong, not for long enough, and we're forgetting to change our brushes on time. That's because most brands focus on selling flashy gimmicks rather than better brushing, but not Quip. So what makes Quip so different? Well, I'm glad you asked me. Um, So Quip, who's our sponsor this week in case you can't tell, is an electric toothbrush that's a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes while still packing just the right amount of vibrations to help clean your teeth. Quip's built-in timer helps you clean for the dentist's recommended two minutes with guiding pulses that remind you when to switch sides. I've got Quip toothbrush. They just sent me the uh, the little replacement head for oh, nice. like just last week. So every if you subscribe for just five bucks, um, they will send you a replacement brush head every three months, which is the dentist's recommended schedule, wouldn't you know? Um, everyone loves Quip. They were on Oprah's O-List. They were named one of Time's Best Inventions. And it's the first subscription electric toothbrush accepted by the American Dental Association. Hmm. So um, Quip starts at just $25. If you go to getquip.com slash overdue right now, you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's a free five bucks. That's like if I walked up to you on the street and was like, here, have this $5. I take it. You can only spend it on a toothbrush head, but it's still free, isn't it? So... <laughs> That's your first <laughs> refill pack for free at getquip.com slash overdue. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com 
slash overdue. Don't walk around with soup in your teeth. Get a Quip toothbrush. Andrew, I've gotten the soup out of my teeth thanks to your help. I'm so glad that you were able to do that with your Quip electric toothbrush. And now I would like to tell you about another of our sponsors this week. This is one of our Patreon sponsors, the Unspoiled Podcasts. So how, how does this relate to soup specifically? Well, there's all sorts of soup. And there's also all sorts of books and movies and TV shows. Uh, and you may remember Unspoiled, we did a crossover episode with Natasha a couple months uh, a couple months ago? Um, it was like a year and a half ago. No way, was it? October, okay, sorry, October 23, 2017. It just feels like every week is a month. That's so. true. Well, if you did not look up uh, Unspoiled after that, now is the time to do it. Unspoiled Network allows you to experience your favorite books and TV shows all over again, as if for the very first time. Almost every show favorites include Harry Potter, The Dresden Files, The Wire, A Song of Ice and Fire, and Westworld is hosted by one person spoiled on the whole series and one person who is totally clueless and completely unspoiled. The Spoiled host guides the noob through their impressions and predictions often with not safe for work or hilarious results such as uh theorizing with complete sincerity that someone was named prongs in harry potter because he got transformed into a lobster uh if you find yourself this sounds like our show except on our show we have two idiots yeah. and no experts <laughs> If you find yourself wishing you could erase your memory and visit your favorites all over again, or if you want a community that understands your obsession, Unspoiled was created especially for you. Find out more at unspoiledpodcast.com or search Unspoiled uh, on any podcast podcatcher to see the full lineup. Let's talk about the boys. Tell me, in the all boys our, are back in town. <laughs> in all of our talk about the Hardy Boys, I we didn't once just talk about the boys. So we talked, you know, we talked about where they come from and who made them. But tell me These about boys are all right. the boys, Andrew, mm-hmm. and the Tower Treasure. I'm just mad about these boys. Okay. Um, actually, I'm not because they're like fine, but they're squares. And they're sure. Weird. Okay. Um, Joe and Frank Hardy, one's a little older, one's a little younger. You could not, if you had a gun to my head, get out of me which one is which, because I don't remember. <laughs> okay. I think Frank is older. But, sure. But it, is, it sounds like it is perhaps irrelevant to this story. Um, they are both the teenage sons of Fenton Hardy, a PI who used to be a cop in the big city of New York City. Okay, so this does. <laughs> do you know that for a fact? Yeah, it says so. Oh, in the okay. book that I read. Okay, Hardy Boys number one tower treasure. Because <laughs> I read that it was sort of a Springfield from The Simpsons situation, even though it is based on like a real city, like town in now, New York that State. You could mean any number of things. What do you? What specifically are you referring to in when that, you say it's a Simpsons Springfield situation? In that it it is like potentially based on a real place but it is not set in a real place right i mean so they don't live in in new york like he used to be a cop in new york city now they live in some like northeastern suburby okay. small town okay. sort that's, of yeah thing. that's what i'm getting at okay but now in, in this in this book it's he specifically used to be a cop in new york we, that comes up when he goes up to new york to question a perp 
Whoa. about a uh, crime Uh-oh. that he did. <laughs> about okay. this crime that he did. So the story begins with Joe and Frank Hardy riding their motorcycles. They get chased by a car, and they're like, oh, that's weird. What's the deal with that car? And then they go see one of their, their friend who has the queen car, Chet, is Chet. the, the yep. name of the friend. And he go, they go to see Chet, and he's got this bright yellow jalopy, which he had named Queen. He worked on it daily to soup up the engine. They show up to Chet's house, and the Queen is gone. Oh. Someone stole a Queen. And they're like, man, that I wonder if it was taken by that guy who wrecked that car, but then he got away. And then they search around a little while with their dad and with Chet and with everybody. And eventually, they find the car in the woods. Uh-huh. And they get like some cursory descriptions of the guy who was driving it and he was like he had like red hair. But then somebody else saw him do another crime and he didn't have red hair <laughs> and so they were <laughs> So and so they say, "Oh, he must have been wearing a wig." Uh-huh. And then they like find the wig in the woods and then they look in the lining to see who made the wig. Oh. And then that leads them to New York City. And So they do go to the Big Apple. They do go to the Big Apple. Okay, so I missed something. So all this is happening with the Queen and stuff. But then also the Apple Gates. There are these rich old people who live in a big house. And the house has two towers, an old tower and a new tower. And hey, these these are the... Do you remember Tower Treasure? This is the tower that the treasurer is in. What or is your energy right now? Because <laughs> he stole... The crime man stole jewels and bonds or something from the house. The, from the, the not house. red-haired man stole something from the tower. He stole something from the Applegate house. Okay. Why do you not seem sure what he stole? He stole jewels and bonds. And stuff. <laughs> it sounds he just like stole a- some... He did some petty theft. <laughs> okay. He committed multiple crimes. Um, all right, so let me just tell you about this this house. It was an immense rambling stone structure overlooking the bay and could be seen for miles, silhouetted against the skyline like an ancient feudal castle. The resemblance to a castle was heightened by the fact that from each of the far ends of the mansion arose a high tower. One of these had been built when the mansion was erected by Major Applegate, an eccentric retired old army man who had made a fortune by lucky real estate deals. God. Years ago, there had been many parties and dances in the mansion. <laughs> But the Applegate family had become scattered until at last there remained in the old home only Herd Applegate and his sister Adelia. They lived in the vast lonely mansion at the present time. Herd Applegate was a man about 60, tall and stooped. His life seemed to be devoted now to the collection of rare stamps. But a few years before, he had built a new tower on the mansion, a duplicate of the original one. His sister Adelia was the maiden lady of uncertain years. What? (laughs) Well-dressed women in Bayport were amused by her clothes. She dressed in clashing colors and unbecoming styles. Her and Adelia Applegate were reputed to be enormously wealthy, although they lived simply, kept only a few servants, and never had visitors. Okay. I, I, you know, I live simply, too. I only have a few servants, <laughs> and I never have visitors. You don't dress in clashing colors, though. No, not usually. I mean, I, I don't always color coordinate my socks with the rest of my clothes. Yeah, but that's a luxury that only a few of us can afford. What, to match your socks not with every, your clothes? Not everyone gets that opportunity, is what I'm saying. So, Hardy Boys, Tower Treasure number one. Um, yeah, how are is, you well, doing you got, so far? I Okay, here's how I'm doing. I'm very worried <laughs> about you, because you sound like you did coke before this episode or something. Like, this book... <laughs> Either you didn't read the book 
God, and you're trying to BS your way through it, which no, you've I never been done before, or you are like so just alight with the fire for the Hardy Boys that you can't even con- concentrate on what happened. The there can't be another explanation. Is what the, ex- the experience of reading the Hardy Boys is kind of surreal because. They are such squares, and maybe it's because some stuff got cut at some point. Oh, sure. Stuff just kind of tumbles along. <laughs> like, you're just along for the ride. Things just get thrown at you with no clear, like, cause or effects. Like, there are just to create tension and then, like, heighten it. Characters are introduced and then forgotten just as quickly as they're introduced. So, toward the end of the book, um, all right. You gotta go me, through. You gotta walk me through this mystery, though. I'll just before run through you the, okay, spoil so anything. Okay. The main. All right. So somebody took jewels from the Applegate house, right? Yeah, the guy who was in that car that went real fast, and then he stole well, the so other fast car. Trace the only Chapman. reason, the only reason we think it was him is because he was like doing other crimes in the area at the same time, and so they just assume. That he did all the crimes. So he was doing all the car stuff, but then he also stole jewels. So he was wearing a red herring wig is what you're saying. Sometimes he was wearing a red wig to like throw people off the scent. And so they like Joe and Frank using some tenuous string of logic, like (laughs) go out into the woods and like find the queen and they find the guy's coat and this wig and they look at the inside of the wig and the manufacturer of the wig is there. So Fenton Hardy's like, I'm going up to New York. And Mrs. Hardy's like, okay, I'll bake you. I'll make you all a picnic lunch that you can go eat. I, she doesn't do that specifically when they go to New York, but that's like pretty much all she's there for is like making picnic lunches for sure, sure. boys and men when they all go out to solve crimes together. Um, they also like go to high school and there's some other friends with names I don't remember, like Chet and Derek and I don't think Derek's one of them. So I will let me, <laughs> You're having such a hard time with these boys. Their friends include Chet, Phil Cohen, Biff Hooper, Jerry Gilroy, and Tony Preto. Now they might not all appear in this book here. They do, but it's just kind of a list of names, and then you never like Chet has the car, and so you see him a little bit. Yeah, well, and there's and like then, um, Phil Cohen. So there's stuff where like the the counter argument to some of the Hardy Boys have terrible racial stereotypes in them is like, oh, but their friend Phil Cohen is Jewish, and it's so like, yeah, Phil Cohen is helpful. Jewish. And then Tony Preto is Italian, yeah, which is as if that like, makes it he, better. Like, used to be one of the lesser kinds of white, I guess, Ugh, and so that excuses so it. I don't know. <laughs> um, um, so one of the things it sounds like you're building towards um, this. What, what you've been describing is this like sensation where the book just kind of happens without reason. Um, and one of the things I noted in the Read at Home Mom blog post about this is. Uh, she mentioned that like in the 20s version a big break in the case occurs when their father goes to new york on his own to investigate and the brothers mostly sit around and wait for news 
Yeah, and in the, the, in that the, happens in this. But in the 59 one, the clues are all basically the same, but the detectives are much quicker about figuring out how wigs are involved, and they are allowed to go with Fenton to New York, which was not apparently in the original. Yeah, so they do make a... Again, the thing that ties all the crimes together at first, like the theft of the car, this guy, he, I don't like the guy who took the jewels. I think he was at one other location doing some other kind of crime. There is no thread except literally it was just someone's doing a bunch of crime in this area at this time. And it must all be the one guy and, and people's descriptions of this man, differ slightly and so the conclusion that they jump to not is that multiple people could be doing crimes but that it must be one person mm. wearing different wigs <laughs> sure so this raises an interesting question because this is the first hardy boys book right but i would presume that given the nature of the syndicate process that this is not treated as like the first time they ever helped with a crime it is just no, like yeah. oh well these are the boys who solve mysteries and here's a mystery right yeah so you're given a little bit of, of contextual information but i'm sure that you get the same basic contextual information at the beginning of any of, them, of right? any because like, yeah, i'm sure. sure they're all yes yes like like the simpsons and springfield there's sort of a reset switch that gets thrown Every episode. At the start of every book, and you just kind of assume that this could be the first book, this could be the first episode any, of the Hardy Boys Any adventure. Hardy Boys yeah. book could be your first Hardy Boys book, so they need yeah. you to come in fresh. Okay, okay. And um, so it's established that Frank and Joe Hardy are amateur boy sleuths, and <laughs> their father, Fenton Hardy, is a hardened P.I. who used to be a cop in the big city. Can you fill me in on Fenton a little bit? Because I... His his he seems does he need the boys' help or not? He okay, so he's not like Encyclopedia Brown's dad, <laughs> who is a fraud whose son solves every mystery. He's not like um, Inspector Gadget even. No, and Inspector Gadget like should be dead except for Penny and Brain. So so there's a there's a spectrum that goes from Inspector Gadget at the low ends, like literally couldn't live in the world without the help of his of his niece his scrappy and niece and her smart dog <laughs> and then like there's Sherlock. encyclopedia brown's dad okay. who's probably like fine but his boy is smarter than him and does help him solve all the crimes while also busting bugs meanies butt all the time <laughs> and then there is fenton hardy who could figure all this stuff out by himself but he lets the boys help and sometimes okay. the boys will do like a like a sort of alley-oop and they'll help him out a little bit. Like they do find that, like they find the wig, like one of the boys finds the car, but Fenton was like on the case already. Sure. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, and so Fenton goes off to New York. He's up there by himself for like a day kind of sleuthing around. And then he invites the boys to come up too. Okay. Um, and so they go to this wig shop and the guy, the guy who made the wig, all right, hold on. Let me go back a little bit. So heightening the tension is not just that there is this crime that happened. We got to figure out who did it. There's also this guy, Henry Robinson, who's the caretaker of the tower mansion, who is the father of Perry Slim Robinson, Uh oh. Um, who is has been accused of taking these jewels. And the main like reasoning is that one, he has access to everything. Sure. And two, he recently he had a debt. 
of $900 that he recently paid off with money that he won't tell anybody how he got. Hey. He swears he didn't steal these jewels and bonds and do it that way. That stuff's in the news all the time. You know, people paying debts with dirty money. It just happens. But, like, there's just no... There's no other evidence, but he gets fired, and then everybody (laughs) in the little town knows that he was fired and won't give him a job, and they have to go rent an apartment in, like, the bad part of town. Oh, no. And it's just, it's really bad for the Robinsons. And so Frank and Joe are like, man, we got to solve this and help Perry and his dad, because they are good people, and we don't think they did it. But Heard Applegate, even though he kind of doesn't think that he did it, doesn't have any better... Sure. Like suspect. Sure. Sure. And sure, so sure. we gotta find we gotta find who did this crime. Okay. So they go to the big city. They go to the wig shop. The wig guy says, "Man, this is a really distinctive wig. I've only made two what? of them for this like what? big performer. Okay. <laughs> this big performer in New York City. So they go to talk to the performer right before his show. Sure. And he's like, yeah, this I had this wig." But one of them, I had one of them got stole, and I need to have another one made. So that's why there's two of them. But somebody stole his wig, and it's this guy. And then they go find the guy, and it turns out, oh, he something happened to him. He's in the hospital, and he's gonna die. What? <laughs> Wait. And Fenton Hart, and then Fenton Hardy's like, well, if he's gonna die, if I go talk to him, he'll just like tell me where all the stuff is. Like, he's, what does oh he got to live God. for? Anymore? That's literally what it is. That's so. Then he just confesses. Is that yeah? True? Oh no. Um. So he confesses, kind of. And okay. Actually, let me let me look up the part about. Uh. So this guy's name is Red Jackley. <laughs> uh huh. Um. I lost him two or three times, but fortunately I managed to pick up his trail again. This is Fenton talking. He got out of the city and into upper New York state. Then his luck failed him. A railroad detective recognized Jackley and the chase was on. Up to that time, I had been content with just keeping behind him. I had still hoped to pose as a fellow fugitive and win his confidence. But when the pursuit started in earnest, I had to join the officers. And they caught Jackley, asks one of the Hardy boys. It doesn't matter which one. Not without great good difficulty. Jackley, by the way, was once a railroad man. Strangely enough, he worked not many miles from here. He managed to steal a railroad hand car and got away from us. Man, all these episodes, I got to say a railroad over and over again. And everybody knows that I pronounce railroad weird. You're fine. You got it. Uh, but he didn't last long for the handcart jumped the tracks on a curve and Jackley was badly smashed up. Killed? Frank asked quickly. No, but he's in a hospital right now and the doctors say he hasn't much of a chance. He's under arrest? Oh yes, he's being held for the jewel thefts and also for the theft from the actor's dressing room, but he probably won't live to answer either charge. Didn't you find out anything that would connect him with the tower robbery? Not a thing. The boys were disappointed, and their expressions showed it. If Red Jackley died without confessing, the secret of the tower robbery would die with him. Mr. Robinson might never be cleared. He might be doomed to spend the rest of his life under a cloud, suspected of being a thief. Have you talked to Jackley, Frank asks? I didn't have a chance. He wasn't conscious. Then you may never be able to get a confession from him. Fenton Hardy shrugged. I may be able to. If Jackley regained consciousness and knows he's going to die, he may admit everything. I intend to see him in the hospital and ask him about the tower robbery. Blah, 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 blah. He's up in Albany. Okay. So- <laughs> Another thread that's happening while all this is happening is there's like this this bumbling PI named Smurf who's like Excuse two to three. Excuse me? His name is Smurf. Gross. And he's two to three steps behind the Hardy family at any given point, but he's trying to solve this too. And so the main, like the tension peaks when 
Smurf is wants to go up and question Jack Lee as well. And so this is where that thing happens where the Hardys like start a fire to distract Smurf because there's a plane at like 6 p.m. And if the Hardys hold him and then there's another one at 7 p.m. And if they can delay him and make him miss the 6 p.m. one, then Fenton will get a chance to talk to Jack Lee before Smurf can get up there. <laughs> okay. And so they're successful. Uh, okay. The Hardy boys work at like a fruit stand that a stereotype runs. They use their positions as trusted sometimes employees of this guy to like delay Smurf. Uh-huh. Rocco was a hardworking man who had come from Italy only a few years ago. He was a simple, genial person and had great admiration for the Hardy Boys. Um, when Frank and Joe walked into the fruit store, they found the dark-eyed Rocco sorting oranges. Buonasera, he said. Good evening. How you like my fix the place? Oh, <laughs> Looks no. swell, Frank answered. New bins, better lights. Then he added, how does your neighbor Smuff like it? Rocco threw up his hands in a gesture of disgust. Oh, that man, he make me mad. He say I charge too much. He tell me I ought to go back to old country. Don't pay attention to him, Joe advised. Blah, blah, blah. Should I like read that again in like a Super Mario? Like, no, please don't. I don't want it. I don't. Good evening. No, stop. Oh, you like him? I fix the place. No, because you also like sort of sound like a Dracula at the same time. And it's weirding me out. Good evening. So like, why do they do this again? They got to delay Smuff. They got to so delay Smuff. He can't also be on the case. And what's the? And at this point, they are trying to. They're not trying to get. Are they still trying to get the confession? They're trying to get a confession out of Red Jackley. Okay. But if Smuff goes up there at the same time or a little bit before Fenton Hardy does, then he'll get the confession. Okay. First. Okay. Sure. So you sure, can't sure. let that happen because it's Smuff. And I presume they're successful. Yeah, they're successful. So Red Jackley does die. Okay. <laughs> but Fenton's like, oh, it's fine. I got the confession out of him first, kind of. Great. And he says he swears that he hid the jewels and whatever that he took in the old tower. Like there's an old tower and a new tower. And he uh-huh. swears that he hid it in the old tower because he didn't have time to like take it to a pawn shop. Like They went around to pawn shops and tried to find if somebody had tried to sell all the stuff, but they didn't have any luck. Um, and that's, that's one case where the Hardy boys do it. And then they get back to their house and tell Fenton that they did it. And he's like, yeah, I did this like half a day ago. Don't (laughs) worry about it. Like, I was going to say a lot of what this book sounds like, it's nowhere near like a Poirot mystery, right? Like there's not like multiple, the book has yet to present multiple candidates for the criminal, it's no, more like about it's, just you like think you think it might be Robinson, but you never actually think that it was him. Yeah, the heroes would not like side with that guy. Yeah, because the Hardys believe so firmly in his innocence that you, the reader, never actually suspect him at any point. So it seems more just about the like ex- how exciting it is to solve a mystery or like do police work. <laughs> I guess like they, yeah, like, and they do want that reward. It's like a thousand dollars. Okay, are they going to um, keep it? Gonna, like put no, it to their college fund or whatever. Yeah, their college fund. Definitely, okay, definitely. <laughs> sure. we'll, I'll read you the last couple lines in the book and and just tell you how it goes. So they have to go find um, the proof that that Jack Lee stole it. 
so they and their dad like search all up and down the old tower in the in the mansion and all up and down the new tower. They can't find anything. And Herd Applegate's like, well, it might it must have been Robinson. This red jackly guy must have been lying. And um and they're feeling very despondent about it. Um Frank and Joe, I think, are going to the railroad to <clears throat> ask somebody there about uh, Jackley because like uh, like we established he used to be a railroad man sure. he didn't work too far from here that's a part when of law and s- order that's pretty normal like go to the man's place of employment ask around like bug go some to people. people who used to know him and ask questions of them <laughs> yes. to try and ascertain more information police work you might say yeah um, and so they are they are feeling kind of despondent after, and they don't really have any leads and then they see wait a minute wait just one dang minute there's a water tower and then there's a new water tower but the old water tower is like right by the railroad so maybe that's the tower red jackley man oh um int oh a double there's two towers there yeah like the lord of the rings um so here's i mean the book is wild in a lot of places but here's the main like this really, really, really sums up the stuff is just happening. Okay. It doesn't like nothing means anything. <laughs> so they go up, they climb up the old tower and they get in there and they find in the old tower that yes, indeed, Ely do. There are jewels and bonds up there. That's where Fenton, not Fenton. That's where, um, Jackley put, put Jackley. Yeah. yeah. Hid the stuff. So they solve the mystery, but then, Oh no, Hobo Joe. Oh wait, Hobo Johnny. Oh, that's very important. <laughs> yeah, there's this guy. What? He picked up the bag and was about to hoist it to his shoulders when both boys heard a sound on the roof of the tower. They looked up to see an evil-looking, unshaven man peering down at them. Halt! He ordered. Who are you? Frank asked. They call me Hobo Johnny. Oh, the man God. replied. This here is my quarters, and anything in it belongs to me. You got no right in my room. You can't take anything away. And thanks for finding the wad. I never thought to look around. Hobo Johnny, who we've never seen before, no one's mentioned or heard him. anything about, mm. comes out of nowhere, and he's like, "Well, boys, you're trapped in my water tower now." And so he like locks them in there. What? Hobo Johnny locks them in the water tower. So, and then okay, so the, uh, but then they're like, "Oh, this wood like looks dry and old," so they like kick through it, and then they climb out of the water tower, and Hobo Johnny has just like gone somewhere else, and he isn't there, and you never hear from him. They again. don't even. <laughs> they report Hobo Johnny to the police. <laughs> what? But that- we never hear anything about Hobo Johnny ever again. <laughs> that is just an indictment of housing policy in New York City. That man. This is in New York City. Is a suburb of New York City. Same, even worse. They're back home. Zoning laws. That man's just trying to live his life and keep his jewels yeah, in his the, water the tower. Nimbies are just keeping him locked in the water tower. Now, what? So. A character does not deal with Hobo Johnny. A character no. never mentions Hobo Johnny. No, you know. <laughs> okay. Now, okay. Yeah, no, the first mention of Hobo Johnny is um I just got to go Give off me of your Kindle, Kindle markings. Kindle yeah. locations. Location 1986. 
out of, of 2125. <laughs> oh, that's pretty late. Is the first time that you hear anything of Hobo Johnny. And then he is last mentioned location 2049, a mere like 60 locations later when they say, oh, we'll just report him to the police. And then I presume from there, everything just works out like they return. He looked all around below. Hobo Johnny was not in sight. In fact, there was no one to be seen anywhere. Problem solved. (laughs) Hobo Johnny is gone. And so the whole book is sort of hanging together pretty tenuously. And then you get to Hobo Johnny. And she's like, what are we doing? <laughs> so this seems, this definitely, and I couldn't find uh, any more granular comparisons that would have explained how this all shook out. Um, but it does feel like it's like a lot of the conflict has been sanitized, right? Like there's no material conflict with Jack Lee. There's no it's just, it's conflict just very, with Hobo Johnny. Yeah, like it's very low stakes conflict. And then here, here's, okay. So you know how wild Hobo Johnny was? Just Uh-oh. like the whole fact of Hobo Johnny's existence? Uh-oh. So you know how Robinson, like the main reason he's suspected is because there's not another suspect. But the like the second most main reason is that he had this debt that he mysteriously yeah. paid off. And he won't mention any, he won't tell anybody, Uh-oh. like he swears up and down, I don't know, like or not, I don't know, but like, I can't tell you. I can't tell you how I got this. Sure, thing. sure. So we're at the end of the book, Hobo Johnny's vanquished, the treasure's been recovered, the boys are getting their reward, Smuff comes up empty handed, and they're like, well, what about, you know, the last thread to tie up, what about this money? Adelia Applegate, who you might recall as the maiden lady of uncertain years who lives in the old mansion with her at Applegate, gets up and goes over to Robinson's side and she says, I will tell you where Robinson got that money. She said dramatically, at my own suggestion, I loaned it to him. You, her brother shouted disbelievingly. Yes, this was one time when I didn't ask your advice because I knew you wouldn't agree. I knew Robinson needed the money and I really forced him to borrow it, but made him promise to tell no one when he, where he got it. Then when the robbery took place, I didn't know what to think. I was sick over the whole affair and I'm very, very glad everything's cleared up. So the main reason that this man was thrown in jail and lost his job and had to move to the bad part of town with his son Slim and probably a wife who just stands at home and makes picnic lunches is because nobody knew where this money came from. But it turned out that the other person who lived in the house with her Applegate had just lent him the money. So she could not have cleared this up at any other time? What? <laughs> I that's well, I'm trying to think of an analogous situation that either of us could ever find ourselves in. There it, isn't one. It has to I don't even Why well, did get locked in a water tower by a hobo once? Yeah. Like oops. That's not true. I'm lying. Oops. I'm honey, I bought this $500 TV to help a guy, but the TV only shows porn and that we can't use it. But I don't know. So this is I, I'm not sure what the thing you just did was. I'm trying to come up with This is like if okay, so Laura gets home uh-huh. and she notices, "Oh, the TV is stolen." Sure, yes. Like the TV is gone. Yes. Um and 
I ha- was like the only one with the key to your house. And so she assumes I stole the TV. Yes. And I don't say and, anything. And you're like, well, I don't know what to think. <laughs> and then later when it's revealed that all along, like the T, like someone gave the TV to charity because someone else was going to give you a new TV and you had given the old or like you had given the old TV away. Yeah, I gave the TV to someone who really like needed the, to watch the Oscars or something. At the yeah. at the end after the mystery was all cleared up, you would be like, "Well, honey, I gave the TV away." And I didn't want to tell you and clear my dear friend Andrew's name because I didn't know what to think. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a more that's that is a, a better analogy than my um I mean, they're all bad analogies because this is dumb. Yeah, so so the book it sounds dumb. Why um do people like it? Like what about the maybe not this book in particular. Wait, wait, wait hold on, hold on. I got to put it we got to put a cap on this. Oh, put a, put a cap on this stone here. Um as he returned to his chair, Mr. Applegate said, "There's just one more item of business, the reward. The $1000 reward goes to Frank and Joe Hardy who solved the mystery of the tower treasure." I believe technically they do like they, you know, they figure out the water tower thing, so all the work that Fenton Hardy did, like they just kind of get it over the finish line and so they have solved the mystery. Correct, correct, correct. A thousand bucks, exclaimed Detective Smuff. Dollars, Mr. Smuff. Dollars, Adelia Applegate corrected him severely. No slang, please. Not in Tower Mansion. One thousand iron men, Smuff continued, unheeding. One thousand round, fat, juicy smackers for two high school boys and a real detective like me. The thought was too much for him. He dropped he yeah, he dropped his head in his hands and groaned aloud. Frank and Joe did not dare look at each other. They were finding it difficult to restrain their laughter. No slang in Tower Mansion. <laughs> I also am I, I'm looking at the Hardy Boys wiki right now, and I'm dismayed to learn that Smuff only appears in three books. Uh, oh, he's not more of a thing? He seems like he might... And maybe he's in some of the reboot stuff, because um, they did like kind of reboot the series a couple times. Um, but it seems like he would be a good foil. Like he's not necessarily a bad guy, but he is a guy that they have to beat, which is a cool, he's not a good foil in this book, but he is a foil. That's what maybe that's enough. (laughs) Sure. So we've, uh, we've talked a lot along the way about, you know, how this version of the book that you read likely differs very heavily from the book that was very successful, uh, in the late twenties, early thirties. Um, but just in I mean, but general, this, but the series continued being yeah. successful. Like I don't, yes. I don't think the changes would have, like, have fundamentally changed the book in some way that would make it not successful when an earlier version was. Well, the series in general was more violent, and um, it seems like they edited that out a lot. But then a man dies, well, Craig. I know you know what a I mean. A man though. dies because a handcar he stole jumped the train track. But then more recent editions of the Who of knows the what Boys. happens to Hobo Johnny. That's true. Probably he, Scurvy gets him or something. Yeah, because um, he doesn't have any oranges. Um, newer editions <laughs> of the Hardy he Boys. He didn't get any. He could have went to Rocco's and got some oranges. <laughs> Duke. Hey, Hobo Johnny. Oh, my God. I got to the oranges. This sucks. Take the citrus before your Hardy Boys <laughs> are like violent and have death and assassins and stuff. So maybe they put that back in there. But regardless of all that, what in the bones of the Hardy Boys? What in the Hardy Boys bones do you see as part of their like appeal? 
maybe not to you, but like, why, <laughs> why are we curious? Why were we curious about the Hardy Boys going into this episode? We were both kind of like excitedly curious about this. I mean, episode. they're an institution, right? What and made I had, them an I institution? Had, yeah, I had fun reading this sure, book, but sure. it's just like, what is all this crap that keeps happening? <laughs> What like, like what why about doesn't any, why doesn't anybody have like a che- a clear chain of evidence That's or anything? True. Like how what's the how do you, is any of this admissible in the court of law? P.S. Like courts never brought up. That's an interesting. You just kind of hope that your perp accidentally dies and that your other perp is cleared and the charges are dropped. Sure, sure. Why are they hardy boys and not men, Andrew? Well, because it's a children's book, right? Like, children don't want to read about adults solving crimes. Children want to read about someone like them or maybe, like, an old, a slightly older kid. Because older, like, younger kids think older kids are cool. That they can aspire to be. Uh, yeah, but, I mean, that that's why. Is it's like, here are these two boys who, even though Fenton seems okay, they make a lot of other adults kind of look like idiots. Chumps. That's, uh, okay, that's a tried and true kids fiction trope. Yeah, like the adults don't understand what's going on. It's only we, the kids. Yes. We rugrat babies who can talk to each other. <laughs> yeah. Are the only ones who really know what's going on. That's very true. That's very true. And our true. parents, Stu and Dee Dee and Angelica's mom. And Uncle and, and Chucky's dad. And Chucky's dad. Charles? Uncle Charles? Charles Finster. Um yeah, they no, they don't know what's up. Okay. In <laughs> one final question for you. And Phil and Lil's mom. I don't did Phil and Lil have a dad? I think yeah, they did, right? He had like blue hair. Yeah, 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 yeah. He had that blue hair? He did have that blue hair. Um later versions of the Hardy Boys, I think the most recent version of the Hardy Boys, uh, is in the first person perspective and the boys like swap each chapter so boy swap what at all could you tell me like what would a frank chapter do you think bring versus a joe chapter are they at all different in this book they literally are not okay (laughs) i think if if anything you would do that pov chapter thing to make them a little different from each other sure are they ever like separated at all yeah, like occasionally, but usually they're acting as a unit. Like they move, like they have, they share initiative in the party. Like they operate as one. They operate as like a as a mob or whatever <laughs> it is. Like they have the same. You roll once for both of them. They're all okay. Okay. Yeah, I guess I just hadn't really considered that. That's how they how the book would treat them. It makes I, sense. Like I I enjoyed it. Like I had fun reading it. But I'm also a 32 year old man, so I'm like. <laughs> Man, these kids are something, huh? Good night. <laughs> Good night. Well, thanks for reading the Hardy Boys, Andrew, and telling me all about their adventure. Um, later on the way oh, home, boy. Mr. Hardy asked his sons, what are you fellows going to do with all that money? Frank had an instant answer. Put most of it in the bank. And Joe added, Frank and I for some time have wanted to build a crime lab on the second floor of our barn. Now we can do it. All right, Dad? The detective smiled and nodded. An excellent idea. So I don't know if they got that crime lab for the next one. I I guess I got to read The House on the Cliff to find out. I do know that in later books, uh, they serve a secret government group called American Teens Against Crime. 
<laughs> who submits all of their uh, assignments to them on CD-ROMs. Because <laughs> American teens are so often doing crimes. No, Like small, like low-level, like shoplifting. That's the and thing about, post, about stuff, post-1959 yeah. Hardy Boys is that they do work for the man. So... Hardy boys are the man. Keep that in mind. They're um, going to grow up to be the man. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about that. Uh, if you, the listener, have opinions about your favorite Hardy Boys adventure, please send them to us at overduepod at gmail.com. Hit us up on the social media, uh, twitter.com slash overduepod or facebook.com slash overduepod. Uh, a lot of folks are reaching out this week, including Jake, Rebecca, Eric, Marnie, Melissa, Chris, uh, Katie, Maria, Laura, Jeremy, Tessa, Cheyenne, Elizabeth, and Aaron, and many more. Andrew, if folks want to know more, more about the show, where should they go? Good night. They should go to OverduePodcast.com, which is our internet website. On that page, they can find out how to solve the mystery of the missing podcast subscription link, because you can use <laughs> links to Apple Podcasts and Google Play and RSS to subscribe to the show and get new episodes when they drop every Monday. You can also solve the secret of how to give us money by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash overdue pod. Give us some money and get some stuff. Um, what is happening next week? Next week, Craig? our good friends, Margaret and Sophie are going to drop by and talk to y'all about love story by Eric Siegel. It's going to be a blast. We're very excited for it. Um, and then after that, we are talking about what else are we talking about? Behold the dreamers. Behold the dreamers, and then um, I'm reading "Suffer the Children" for our bonus episode. So, yeah. got a full month. Um, and we mentioned unspoiled during the ad break. We will also be doing uh, an unspoiled episode on Johnny Tremaine uh, later this month, and then it'll hit our feeds in September. So keep an eye out for that. Yeah, keep an eye out for Johnny Tremaine. And then uh, it's never too early to think about Spooktober. I started, Craig, I didn't tell you this, I started putting together a potential Spooktober lists for this October. If you have scary books that we haven't read yet that you'd be interested in us reading, hit us up with those recommendations. Great. Yeah, it's going to get spooky. Okay, everybody, thank you so much for listening. And until you'd solve a mystery with us next week, try to be happy. That was a headgum podcast. Toop. Alley soup. Uh, that sounds disgusting. Alley soup sounds really alley gross. Soup. <laughs> is it soup that I made in an alley or is it soup that I made out of stuff that I got from an alley? I think it is soup sold to me in an alley by an alley stranger and i want a man who comes he opens a trench coat and he just has a bunch of mason jars full of loose soup the mystery of the alley soup hey hey kid Mm. you got i got your soup Mm. you got your you got your room temperature soup Mm. why do you sound like an 80s movie executive sir hey (laughs) 